When we first moved to Greenville um, to plant Village, I wasn't, we hadn't started public worship yet, and I was working in creative and web design, and I was on a project with a guy uh, who invited my family to go with his family to one of the many Easter services that they were holding at his very large church. They were going to the Friday night service. And on the one hand, I was super thankful for the invite. He didn't have to do that at all. Uh, and on the other hand, I was pained, to be honest. Historically, Good Friday was widely observed in churches of all stripes until recent centuries. Now, uh, these days, you, you might go into church and not even find a cross anywhere. And so I was pained a bit by this. And I'll admit, as I gave my reply, I had to pay close attention to my phrasing and my tone and my face. Because I can be prideful, because I am a sinner. And I said, that's very kind, thank you. I think we'll find a good Friday service that night. I didn't say, I think we'll find a good Friday service that night. And he replied, oh right, and then moved on, and so did I. So you know this, of course, observing Good Friday and attending services, it doesn't make you a better Christian. It doesn't guarantee a better Easter. And I guess the truth is, my pastor's heart just wants us, all of us, the church, capital C, we say, to harmonize with our history and the reason we have this history, but more importantly, just to let the cross do its unique work in us on our way to Easter. It is not for nothing that St. Paul told the very dysfunctional Corinthians who didn't like the topic of suffering at all, he told them this, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So one way we can allow Good Friday to do its work today is by reflecting on some of the powerful signs that occurred while Jesus hung on the cross and died. Signs that actually reveal the work of salvation and redemption even before Jesus was resurrected. The darkness at midday, the torn veil at the temple, and the saints who were raised from their tombs at his dying breath. And I want us to just walk through all of the, the Gospels, really, to find these details that are so vitally important to our understanding of the cross. So first, the darkness. In Luke 23, reads, It was now about midday, and there was darkness over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed. From Genesis on, darkness matters to the story. It matters to our story. Before God acted in creation, we find out that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Before God said, let there be light. So in this picture, in this reality, in this history, in this truth, the Lord of the sun and moon, whom John calls the light of men, was creating again from a canvas of darkness and disorder. Creation was actually beginning again in darkness, as the Word of God in the flesh was speaking with His own body. In Him, the possibility for life and communion with God was being reformed. The power and the pervasiveness of darkness was being confronted with light, was being scattered, even as the light of Jesus' life was seemingly extinguished. In Luke 22, when Jesus is being betrayed and arrested at Gethsemane, he said, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. 
in what Jesus suffered physically and emotionally and spiritually. All the powers of evil working through the powers of corrupt government and culture and religion exhausted themselves on him. In the sudden and unnerving darkness that fell upon the land, we might imagine that the tempter that Jesus faced in the wilderness is gloating, saying, see, I told you that this world is in my power, the power of darkness. You should have taken my offer. Your way has failed. In the darkness, the echo of the prophets is heard. We heard from Isaiah Hear from him again in chapter 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Likewise, Jeremiah announced, My people did not turn from their ways. I have brought a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. The sun went down while it was yet day. My people have been shamed and disgraced. The prophet Amos said, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So this was more than an echo from the prophets. This darkness is a staggering fulfillment of the prophetic utterance of history, of truth. In this eclipse over Calvary, God's promised rightful judgment of humanity's rebellion does what falls entirely on a willing only son, as Amos said. As he promised, the Lord is dealing fully and finally with sin. It's shame and our disgrace. He is taking it upon himself in the darkness. And so Good Friday is a kind of shared response on our way to Easter. We, the church, return to the story in repentance on behalf of the whole world. In one sense, this is a summons to the foot of the cross so that, as Peter put it, judgment can begin with the household of God. Why? Because we know why the darkness fell. But we also know how the light has come and how a creation once declared good becomes good again. The second sign we see is the tearing of the temple veil. Matthew 27 reads, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple that's in question here was constructed as a series of courts within courts. It was like a compound, imagine, with courts within other courts. First you had the court of the Gentiles for whomever. Then you had the women's court. And then you had, uh, if you were a man, you could go one court further. And that's the end of the line for all the ordinary folk. Beyond that, only the priests could venture. And maybe it's a silly comparison, but those of us who regularly and, to be honest, exclusively travel in coach are fully aware of the curtain dividing the sardine can in the back from the cocktail lounge in the front. That thin curtain tells us where we belong and where we do not belong. Beyond the court for ordinary folk uh, was the temple itself, another complex of rooms within rooms, and the innermost sanctuary was the Holy of Holies behind a heavy curtain, a veil to hide it. Inside was the mercy seat, 
between the cherubim or the, the angels, figures of angels, where forgiveness was to be found. The throne of God is there, and no one could go in there except once per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And one man, the high priest, could go on this one day with the blood of a sacrifice to sprinkle it on the throne, to sprinkle it on that mercy seat for the forgiveness of the whole nation. Hebrews 9 says, But when Christ appeared as a great high priest, he entered once for all into the Holy of Holies by means of his own blood, thus securing an everlasting redemption. So in the moment Jesus' body was torn and offered on the cross, the need for a human intermediary ended. Jesus became our great high priest and shed his own blood for us. The cross became the mercy seat. The cross became the throne of God. The cross became the holy of holies. The veil was torn as a sign that now there is no distinction. As the Apostle Paul tells the Romans, saying, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly, for all the outer court people, for you, for me. And lastly, the open tombs. We don't talk about this one very often, do we? It's hard to even imagine, but it's deeply important to this moment, to the crucifixion, to the cross. Matthew 27 continues, The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many. What in the world? Right? Rocks split and graves open and bodies are raised. And not only that, they're walking around the neighborhood. And all of these are passives, according to Matthew. God is doing this. If Satan and the forces of hell believed themselves to be in control, the party was short-lived. The whole earth is witness to divine intervention on its behalf. Rocks are truly crying out with a crack, as Jesus foretold. The course of the world is being interrupted. This is what this is. Shaken. And things will never be the same. In this shaking with bodies raised, the present age as they knew it, and as we know it, is put into the perspective of the age to come, which shakes the dead from tombs long sealed. The saints talked about here who died in faith, they were hoping for this very day. They were raised they were not raised on Resurrection Sunday, mind you, but they were raised at the last struggling breath of their suffering Savior. Jesus gives life in His death. The cross is already proclaiming the power of the resurrection. It's not a segue. The cross is already proclaiming the power of the resurrection. Though we tend to look at the future right through the lens of the present Jesus who shook the dead free of their death that day, He calls us to see the present and even the past in the light of the future. In the light of the coming resurrection. As T.S. Eliot put it in the closing of a poem, he said, My end is my beginning. In the moment of Christ's death, the present age is shaken up so forcibly that it shakes even the cruel Roman centurions off the foundations of their understanding and their expectation, proclaiming truly this must be the Son of God. The truth is the cross shakes our age too. 
our age of death and of life insurance and of politics and of medicine and labor and money and success and failure and sports and war and taxes and elections and inflation and immunization and factories and families and the State Department and the Supreme Court. It shakes it all. Television and newspapers and the Internet. All these things that make up what we call the real world. All our ways of managing life, all our ways of controlling circumstances, all our ways of mitigating suffering, seeking security and even fulfillment in things we can handle, things we can explain. All of it is shaken by the cross and what it proclaims. It's challenged. It's all exposed. We don't have to be in a sealed tomb, friends, to be raised to life. Our baptism already tells us this. It enacts this truth that a death brings life when we die with Christ to be raised with Him. The Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us and tells this to us. The freedom of forgiveness that was won on the cross on that bloody throne, it lifts our heads, it lifts our hearts out of the grave of shame and despair and of condemnation and of alienation from God and from one another. So hear me. For all who are in Christ, the deep darkness cannot last. Whatever form it has taken or is taking has been judged. God has made and is making you and me and the whole world, the whole creation new and alive because of Christ's triumph by means of and not in spite of the cross. No veil, real or imagined, in your life or mine can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction. Nothing can alienate us from our design or from our destiny. In his revelation, John saw this vivid reality saying of Jesus and of us, he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priests. To our God, no more veils, no more distinctions, no more divisions, but Christ is in all and through all. There's no more despair, not fully. There's no tomb, no sin or suffering or death in this passing age that can ultimately bury us in it, in the reality of the present, whatever it presents as we await the resurrection, as we live our lives through baptism and with repentance and in forgiveness. And there it is. This is why we can call this terrible day good. And this is why the cross proclaims life, even as Jesus hung upon it. And this is why we reflect and we embrace and even venerate the cross today, because it is life. Lord, help us to glory in your cross. And help us, Lord, to live in the present, even in our suffering, our despair, in our feeling of alienation or loneliness, and all the things, Lord Jesus, that you felt. Help us right now to live in the present, knowing that our end, our resurrection, our hope, is our beginning. It's our now. It's our life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.